Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Welcome to GodPod 67. Ooh, 67, that's where we are today. And um, today we uh, are missing the wonderful Jane. Very much missing the wonderful Jane. And sadly, there is no female voice around the table, which is a real shame. No, not really. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering, that is Mike <laughs> trying to do a female voice and failing miserably. So um, we do have Michael. We do. We do. Sorry indeed, about that. As always. We do have a guest today who is Sean Doherty, who is uh, our tutor in ethics at St. Melitus College and St. Paul's Theological Centre. So, uh, Sean, it's great to have you on Godfather. Hello. Thanks for having me. I think this is your first time on one of these, it is isn't indeed, it? indeed, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure whether that's a great honour or not, but it is for us to have you here. It's a great honour for me, I'm sure. That's right. Very good. <laughs> looking nice of you to get around to, to it <laughs> on number 67. <laughs> we finally got there. Um, there's, a whole, there's a long queue of people <laughs> eager to get on to Godbod, but there you go. Um, so it's, just, it's the three of us today, and uh, having Sean here as a specialist in ethics gives us the opportunity to um, tackle one or two things we've been putting off for ages, and we thought, you know, we'll do that one when Sean gets here. So um, that's the kind of idea. So here we are, and we launch into Godpod 67. And um, the um, first question we're going to look at today is one that came in a little while ago. And um, as I say, we've been saving it up for you, Sean. So no pressure. A nice, scary question exactly. for me, yeah. Uh, and it's a question on uh, divorce. And um, it starts off, divorce seems to be all around. It sounds like a song to me, so um, <laughs> we won't sing it. Uh, Thank you for that. And uh, the um, writer, Nick Cooper, says, uh, I find church teaching confusing and don't quite know how to support people going through divorce. And his questions are, are there situations where staying in a marriage would really be a denial of the goodness of creation and therefore more sinful than separating? That's not situations of abuse, but rather, for example, a major incompatibility to the point of significant misery or despair. And then there's the issue of, of remarriage. Uh, what if someone has suffered abuse and wants to remarry? What happens if you weren't the one who walked out? And what if you were? Uh, what happens if it's simply a mutual decision about being incompatible from the beginning, acknowledging that everyone makes mistakes? Should uh, the church just sort of accept that as part of life? Um, people just continue within the Christian life, admitted to the Eucharist and so on. Or should there be some kind of discipline? Or what's the sort of, how do we think of those? There's a whole lot of different issues around uh, there. So um, uh, I don't know who wants to start on this one. Um, I guess <laughs> we're looking at you. Yeah. <laughs> might be helpful to separate it into a couple of questions because I think there's different, in a way, there's probably different answers to the different questions. So, for example, how you care for and support people who are considering divorce uh, or if you are yourself in a marriage and you're wondering if divorce is the right way forward, uh, that's one question. Another question would then be, if uh, someone's been divorced, can they get remarried? Maybe mm. we might want to give a slightly different answer to that. And then the third question would be, should someone who's divorced uh, be uh, be part of um, communion, which I suppose is a third thing, because I, I suppose I wouldn't want to just give one blanket answer which covers 
all three of those yeah. different situations. Yeah, that's very helpful. So um, do you want to tackle one of those? <laughs> okay, yes. Well, uh, the easy one is, should someone who's uh, uh, been divorced be able to receive communion? The easy answer, I think, is uh, that uh, everyone who, uh, certainly in uh, in the Church of England, where I'm, uh, which I'm part of, uh, anyone who uh, knows that they've done wrong and confesses and is uh, baptised and part of the Church of England uh, is able to receive communion. So uh, I think we should have a very open uh, welcoming uh, yeah. table uh, Jesus ate with people uh, of all kinds of shapes and sizes he uh, tended not to uh, be too picky about who he ate with especially one or two famous examples and if there was a sort of moral test for how well you had behaved as a condition to come into communion I think it'd be rather sparsely attended I imagine <laughs> that's true <clears throat> and I agree with you but let me kind of run a question by I mean the there are bits in the New Testament where mm, some mm. sort of community discipline seems to be practiced uh, in cases of, of kind of gross public scandal, mm, it seems mm. to me. Um, is, is, there, is there any place for that? And if so, how does that fit into our basic, you know, the yes. fact that we are all sinners and we, and we yeah. are all in the same boat yeah. in some ways? So, you're, so I suppose what you're saying is there should be a, a, a basic welcome to all and sort of open door policy but then in the new testament there are except there do seem to be exceptions to that so i agree with you um i mean in the new testament it's sort of example one of the examples is um someone who's uh, uh, committing incest so i mean that's a pretty extreme thing isn't it uh whereas uh, divorce is mentioned in the new testament lots of times but there's never any particular hint that uh, divorced people shouldn't be admitted to uh, communion. So I suppose, uh, as you say, if there's a scandal involved, uh, or particularly I think um, in Matthew 18, where Jesus talks about confronting people who uh, who are sinning and know, knowing that they are, and you've given them lots of opportunities to change their ways, then there seems to be uh, sort of, it, uh, Jesus says, uh, don't even eat with people, don't associate with people in those circumstances. But I think that's uh, when people are sort of uh, knowingly choosing to go against um, the the way that the church is going and uh, and refusing to sort of turn away to, and uh, publicly going against that so i think that's a particular circumstance mm. certainly not applicable to most of all you know most people who who we're mm. talking about in divorce and remarriage and i guess during the process of divorce which is a i guess in most cases or in many cases a very painful mm. <coughs> time of life there may well be some good reasons for kind of withdrawing from kind of public ministry in a church leadership positions um almost for pastoral reasons rather than just for for other reasons because i guess i suppose it, i mean divorce i mean you have the sense that and it, it it happens and it's sort of it's it's going kind to of acknowledge that it happens in scripture but the fact that it happens doesn't mean that it's a good thing in itself, and in a sense, it's always a slightly tragic thing mm, for it to happen. And, and you can't, you know, however, even if you do get to the position of saying, "Well, in certain circumstances, divorce is the lesser of two evils," it's still, it's still not a good thing that it happens. I'm and that's sure what needs to be somehow I'm preserved. Sure it seems to me, few divorced people teaching. would 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 think it was a, a good thing. I mean, yeah. uh, certainly in my experience, people find it a very painful thing. This mm. is something very deep that we're talking about, and uh, mm. absolutely, people don't do it lightly, do they? Augustine, I think it's Augustine, who says that most people sin tearfully. Hmm. Um, hmm. And that's, that seems to me the, the voice of the pastor, um, Augustine. You know, most people are not high-handedly hmm. sinning, and I think hmm. that's nowhere more the case than in this area. 
Um, it's always mm. a thing that tears you Very apart. Good. It's your identity yeah. is is bound up with somebody else's, and mm. and if it's being torn mm. apart, that tears you apart, and you can't come out mm. cleanly because mm. your lives are not um, extricable that what, that easily without pain and without. What what, what then about the question of um, whether divorce is ever the right thing to mm. do? Mm-hmm. Because that Jesus says some quite strong things about divorce and remarriage. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the question, or the first question in, in the the, um, the email was this um, basic one about are there situations where staying in a marriage would be the wrong thing to do? Well, um, that yeah, great. That's a great way of putting it in terms of um, uh, because then that makes it very clear that no one is seeking this and people don't <coughs> want it. But uh, sometimes it's uh, unavoid. It feels unavoidable, perhaps. Uh, one of the things that's confusing for us, I think, uh, as Christians, when we read. Uh, and try and work out what did Jesus actually say and think about this issue is that the uh, the different gospel accounts of Jesus' teaching on divorce actually say or seem to say at least slightly different things so uh, in uh, Mark's gospel uh, Jesus says um, there is uh, he says uh, there, sh- there should be no divorce at all and he doesn't seem to add uh, any qualification or exceptions uh, for that I think that's in Mark chapter 10 so uh, Hmm. Let me just check my facts before I <laughs> launch. Always say, yeah, exactly. So, papers here. Mark chapter ten. So, Mark chapter ten, and then uh, Jesus said in verse seven, uh, oh, verse eight, they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So he's quoting uh, a Genesis. He goes back to Genesis and the sort of example where God instituted marriage in the first place. But uh, in particular, um, then in verse 11, just a couple of verses later, it says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery exactly full stop so there don't seem to be any exceptions no wiggle room no leniency no uh you know it's a divorce uh, and particularly then divorce followed by remarriage is adultery in this interesting one there example. though it does imply yep. that it's the remarriage is the thing that seems to, Absolutely, yeah. to uh-huh. be problematic in that text as opposed to divorce well he still says let no one separate so there's <coughs> yep. seems to be prohibition of separation and yeah. but then also yeah. re- remarriage but i mean separation isn't adultery so at least it's avoiding that particular thing however in matthew 19 there's a slightly different um version of the same uh the same example the same story and um famously so matthew 19 verse 9 jesus says i tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery so that's there's an exception there which is completely uh, absent in mark's account of the same uh, story so what are we to make of that and of course then there's some uh, there's always the problem of working out what the word that is here translated marital unfaithfulness Ah, actually means pornea yes um does it mean marital infidelity is it a more a wider mm. kind of sexual mm. sin thing yeah um, which which is how it's come to us in the sense of that's obviously where we get the word pornography from so yes. which uh, can just mean any sort of obscene or sort of sexual material really or that's how we sort of use Interpret it, it yes. now then it sort of just seems to have me- meant uh, something that's shameful so it, it might well have meant for example not only adultery for which there was another greek word moikilia 
but also it could include uh, if someone wasn't a virgin when they got married. Uh, in, if we applied that standard to contemporary marriage, there would obviously be uh, vanishingly <laughs> few <laughs> marriages which, um, in which that, uh, that applied. Yeah. So, uh, Sean, what's the answer? Uh, well, I can give you an answer. You. I can give you an answer which I found quite um, quite helpful. At least, I mean, what I find helpful, especially here, is that uh, we've got we've got a question of not just um, what do we do, but actually how do we understand these two different biblical texts. So, um, uh, it's not simply a question of um, uh, are Christians just if Christians have a more open attitude to divorce and remarriage, are they just being pushed around and led around by uh, sort of the latest contemporary fashion yeah. fashions in morals? But actually, the the New Testament itself has, seems to have some diversity on the on the question. So my understanding of this is, or my the sort of explanation that I found quite satisfying is um, uh, put forward by a scholar called David Instone Brewer, who's in Cambridge, mm-hmm. and he's done quite a lot of research into the. Uh, rabbinic backgrounds to uh, to Jesus's time uh, there were two sort of main schools of thought amongst the the rabbis and uh, so he's, he argues that Jesus is being asked to take uh, up a position in relation to these two schools of thought one of which rather, said, rather way modern journalists are always trying to get yes you've got to be on one side or the, or the other yeah. yes. one of these schools was very strict and said you couldn't get divorced <coughs> uh, except for um, for unfaithfulness as in as in the Matthew passage, and one of them was actually much more lax, uh, and so uh, w- said you could get divorced for, m- for many more reasons than that. And the reason why both schools of thought thought you could get divorced for unfaithfulness was because the uh, the law of Moses permitted divorce for at least that uh, reason, uh, as well as some others. So, so the um, so David Instone Brewer's argument is that in Mark's gospel, which was probably, as far as we know. This is, takes us to slightly different territory. Probably mm. the earliest gospel, when that was first uh, composed and written down, uh, nobody needed to say um, except for because everyone assumed that if you were saying you weren't allowed to get divorced, uh, they assumed you meant except for these particular Because even the extreme uh, school yeah. allowed that. Everyone allowed that yeah. because yeah. the law of Moses yeah. allowed that. So either Jesus in Mark is being stricter than the very strictest people of the day, or he is just not uh, verbalising the exception which everybody knew that. about. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now, the danger of that is it's a slight argument from silence. The question is whether it's a mm. sort of a, a, a sound one. one. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, and his evidence in favour of that being a sound argument from silence, of course, is the text in Matthew's Gospel, which you just mm. read. So the exception, which is sort of made explicit, Matthew, presumably, we guess, we sort of mm. think uh, that was probably written after Mark, needed to spell it out a bit more clearly for his uh, for his mm. readership. So I mean, that you have there in the Matthew text and mm-hmm. arguably in the Mark text as well, but hidden away, this exception mm-hmm. about marital ah, unfaithfulness yes. or porneia, which, as we've discussed, could mean a number of different things. And I guess the, going back to the question originally, um, what about a marriage where there isn't open unfaithfulness, mm-hmm. but there's a kind of breakdown of relationship, yeah. there's a serious incompatibility yeah. or whatever it might mean, and no one has, strictly speaking, mm-hmm. been unfaithful, mm-hmm. but actually the marriage has ceased to mm, function mm-hmm. in, a, in a, any sort of real way. Uh, does that not come under this, because it doesn't come under this condition, uh, yep. is, you know, are, are those two people to stay together? 
Or um, how do we well, to think about that? There is one other exception uh, in the New Testament, which is in uh, 1 Corinthians, which uh, where Paul talks about if you're a Christian and you're married to a non-Christian and then your non-Christian spouse decides to leave you, he says that that person is not bound. So uh, there are, so it seems to me there's at least two exceptions to the prohibition on divorce. So generally there's a prohibition divorce isn't isn't a good option uh you know it's sort of not not to be sought out but in these two exceptions at least uh it seems to be that if the other uh, half the other party within a marriage uh dissolves <coughs> it or somehow uh, demolishes it either by adultery uh, or sexual unfaithfulness of some kind or by um by completely abandoning you and saying well, this is it that's the end um then then presumably you know it certainly seems the new testament is saying you can get you can get remarried in those circumstances you're not bound um so those are two circumstances at least now the debate then becomes quite fierce because some people will say well these two examples in the new testament are are examples Hmm. they're cases in which marriages could be dissolved by the actions by the wrongdoing of somebody Hmm. now it's important to say see that it's by wrongdoing by something quite serious not just happening to drift apart or mm. uh, to find things find one another difficult which everyone who's married <laughs> certainly does the question is are are there other cases is is this an exhaustive list should we treat it as exhaustive or should we treat it as yeah. just examples and i guess that the and there is a wider theological point i guess which is that for you know the new testament also speaks of marriage as a as a as a, as a kind of mystery and, and it connects it to the mystery of the relationship between mm, Christ and mm. the church. And there's this, this sense in which, you know, marriage is not, you know, in Christian terms, is not just a convenient way of organizing society or a sort of means mm-hmm. of personal fulfillment that I happen to like someone, so I, I marry <coughs> them. But it is actually a, a sort of deep expression of something quite fundamental within the, the nature of the world, the love of Christ for his, his church. Mm-hmm. So every marriage, to that extent, is a representation of something much more significant, much bigger, mm-hmm. which is the love and the commitment of Christ to his church and, and, and vice versa. So, And I suppose that's partly why the New Testament seems to me sees divorce as such a tragic thing, because it's not just the sad breakup of a relationship between two people and the damage and hurt that that causes to those two people and obviously there any children involved as well, but actually it somehow sort of almost tears the fabric of the universe a bit because it, yep. because it actually touches on, and, and it's a it's a, because the marriage is such a significant symbol of the relationship between Christ and his church, it almost tugs at that relationship as well. And I think makes it harder for people to believe any experience of love breaking down makes it harder for people to trust love. Um, and marriages, in a sense, are called to be um, counterexamples to cynicism mm-hmm. yeah. uh, by giving evidence to people that, no, it, it can be real, it can yeah. be... I remember reading recently, I think it was... He was saying, I think it might be Stanley Howe was saying that marriage is a is an ascetic practice. In other words, it's a practice of self denial, and um, it's kind of kind of quite a countercultural mm. thing to mm. say. Yes, because we think marriage is all about self fulfilment. You know, I get married because mm. I'm going to be more fulfilled, mm. and obviously there is fulfilment in in marriage. But there's a certain amount of of self denial mm. that, that has to mm. take place in in a marriage to make it to make it work. You know, you do close off your options. You know, you don't look at other people. You are committed to one person from that that time onwards. There is a sort of sense of uh, Sort of disciplining yourself, denying yourself, you know, but by committing yourself to to one person, and and that, actually in some ways that's a kind of 
And what that seems to me to say, alongside this idea of marriage as being sort of representing the relationship between Christ and his church, is that you know, we're kind of called to make every possible effort to, 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 to make a marriage work. Mm. Now, that may still stop, stop short of saying that, you know, saying no divorce, but it does actually lay a, a burden on us to, to, to leave no stone unturned in trying to preserve a marriage, it seems to me. Something else that uh, Hawass says is, uh, uh, he says, you always marry the wrong person. Uh, you, you, you know, yeah, you, always we always do. think that we're, uh, <laughs> yeah, everyone marries the wrong person. Uh, thank you for correcting his grammar, Mike. It's very helpful. Um, so, uh, and I think that's actually very helpful to bear in mind because we uh, often we seem so concerned: is this the right person for me? Yep. I don't want to make a mistake. Hmm. And it's right to be careful and uh, thoughtful, obviously, about uh, anyone. You know, for anyone who's thinking of getting married, you shouldn't rush into it. Uh, but at the same time, you you please don't think, for heaven's sake, that you're going to marry some perfect yes. person. Because mm. uh, even if your spouse is perfect, uh, you're still going to be part of the marriage. Uh, and so, you know, there's there's always going to be problems and challenges. Yeah. You bring yourself into the marriage mm. with all of the sort of baggage yeah. and stuff that you There's have. a sense of which every marriage is Vice between versa. two. It's between two incompatible people. Yes, yes. exactly. But actually, we, you know, we're always incompatible with each other, and actually, it takes quite a bit of effort to to, to bring mm-hmm. two quite, mm-hmm. you know, sinful, broken mm-hmm. people to actually make a relationship work. And the closer you get to each other, the more incompatable you are. Yeah. <laughs> <Very> <laughs> but you don't know somebody very well, yeah. and it's easy enough to live yeah, with them. But, right. uh, I and I think I think with my my own experience, I mean, I got married three years ago, and it's and it's been great. But it is. It, 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 it suddenly makes you realise that when people say it is the hardest thing you'll ever do, yes, they're absolutely yes. not exaggerating mm. a job. It is the hardest thing um, one ever does. And that, I think because of that, it makes me think two things. One is that it makes me very understanding of people who get to the point of mm. uh, of, 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 course. of breaking because one really does understand the pressures and, and, mm. and demands mm. uh, in a way that I would never you know, condemn anybody mm. for getting to that point. Um, on the other hand... It also, funnily enough, makes me grateful that we have the kind of ideal set before us so powerfully as we mm. do in the New mm. Testament. In some ways, one's tempted to say, oh, isn't it just too uh, high, high yes, unworkable, a standard, unworkable, doesn't yeah. it actually create misery in people? But actually, my experience is that you need that yes, held above rigor, yeah. out mm. to you mm-hmm. um, to, to pull you through, to, get, to, mm-hmm. to keep you going. When it is really Absolutely. hard, um, and and that I'm actually grateful that it's held out like that. I think that. that's why um, the, uh, theology speaks of marriage as a covenant rather than a contract. Mm. So a contract, mm. if if you have a contract with your mobile phone uh, provider, for example, uh, which is a contract most people probably have, if they don't make, if you can never make any calls because the signal is so terrible, <coughs> or uh, mm. uh, because they're always the network's down or something, you would uh, you terminate the contract. You say, well, you haven't kept your end of the deal. So I'm going to stop keeping my end of the deal. I'm going to stop paying you money, and you probably want a bit of a refund as well. But marriage is a covenant. It's not something which is conditional on uh, on the other person sort of keeping uh, keeping their side of the of the bargain. It's more unconditional uh, than that. And that goes back to what Graham was saying about uh, God's relationship with us. It's a covenant. It can't be broken, even when we don't keep our side of the bargain, uh, which is which obviously we never do. God keeps loving us and is faithful to us. I think the other thing is people flourish when they're committed to. Yes. Um, and and that commit being committed to 
is is costly mm. it's a really costly thing because we are fallen people because we hurt each other um but actually that is the ultimate affirmation really i think you are worth yes being committed to mm. for the rest of my life well, it's worth, worth saying isn't it that i mean certainly the the marriage course that runs out of out of HTB here is you know has remarkable stories you hear about marriages that are on the point mm. of breakdown divorce and there's a last resort people go on this 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 thing and suddenly learning to communicate in ways that they've never learned mm. to do over the years can suddenly revitalize that marriage and, and, and can bring it to bring it back again and obviously it doesn't happen in every case but it is remarkable i was i was when i hear those stories i was thinking you know, mm, mm. uh, you know that you're set on a trajectory which just seems inevitably to leading towards divorce and then something like that yes. can can suddenly set a new pattern and, yes. and, and opens out a new possibility so it's it's this thing of just doing mm. whatever whatever it can take to try to save a marriage not you know and, uh, yes in, in occasions it may be that maybe as i say the lesser of two evils it may it's not saying there's no divorce at all, but um, but it is it does, does does offer hope that that even in situations that seem quite desperate, there mm -hmm. is there is a possible way back. You, you need to be a bit careful on the lesser of two evils side of things. I think uh, mm. I'm not sure you can you you can as a Christian that uh, sort of uh, weighing up the consequences of actions is necessarily a helpful guide to uh, uh, to morality. But we'll have to we'll probably have to okay, leave yeah, that for a, a different God's pod. <laughs> so the you consequentialist, you yeah, exactly. Right. So, uh, uh, but what, what I love what I love about what you've said there, Graham, is reminding us that uh, God is not uh, up up in heaven and has nothing to do with the the world and with marriage and with real lives. But actually, He is at work in the world. Uh, restoring marriages and bringing people so actually jesus in all of the sort of passages in the gospels jesus says those whom god has joined together and so we need to remember it's actually god not just once for all back in the past but he can still join people together and uh, yeah. uh, so have some sort of hope uh, more hope for 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 their real lives good um I'm. I don't know about you, but I'm. I'm, I'm rather missing Jane in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Because I think um, you have the musings of three men <laughs> on this question, which I think is valuable in itself. You know, we all come at it from one point, but it would have been great to have Jane or, or you know, to to add, add to her voice. But sadly, that chair is empty around the table because she's on sabbatical. And she's on sabbatical, studying away, doing some studying and writing and reading. And so on, so. Reading and Jane, wherever you are, we miss you. <laughs> anyway, uh, we should move on to another question. And um, the one we're going to move on to is a very different one. And I'm struggling to find a link, as I normally do at this point. It doesn't usually <laughs> stop you trying. Well, I'm not even going to try this time because it's such a different issue. Um, but it's a very simple question that came in from um, Douglas Wilkinson, who says, Are high churchmanship and charismatic theology and practice compatible? Can you be high church and charismatic? Yes. What's the third question? <laughs> uh, come on, um, we've got to do a bit better than that. Oh, okay, oh, fair enough. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think um, very largely, uh, and indeed I think um, that's when both are at their best, hmm. when charismatic worship is sacramental, uh, when it's rich in symbolism, colour, drama, um, and when... Uh, high church practice is uh, open to the guidance of the Holy Spirit and, and consciously so. Um, so I, 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 it depends what you mean by high church practice, obviously, and charismatic. But, but it seems to me that, that um, high church practice is about 
uh, ritual. Uh, it is about um, drama. It's about symbol. Uh, it's about dignity. Um, and all those are things that are entirely compatible mm. with, a, with a charismatic uh, mindset and theology. <laughs> sure, I'm looking at Graham's you. looking at me. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. I think uh, they that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, every church service has to be has to try and cram all elements together into it. But yep. I think that uh, certainly they can be uh, some of the most uh, sort of um, uh, open to God people I know are a very very high church uh, and uh, and very very low church you know other different people are as well and so uh, uh, i i definitely <coughs> think we m- most christians would want to meet god as often and as deeply as they can and would probably be open to any uh, way that will help them to uh, to do that and it may be that um both both ways of worshiping um the, the, the kind of more charismatic expression but also more sort of um what we might call high church or Anglo-Catholic. I suppose both, both in a way have something in common in that both you know, have a deep conviction that, that, that God does make himself mm. known to us and mm-hmm. can be experienced yeah. in a way, mm-hmm. um, whether through the ecstasy of a song or a, mm. a, a piece mm-hmm. of worship or, or ministry of the Spirit or through an encounter with, with, through the Eucharist or through the kind of drama mm-hmm. of, of, of um, ritualized sort of worship. In some ways, both are expecting the presence mm. of the spirit mm-hmm. um and uh you know whether through song worship or or, or the laying on of hands or, or, or prayers or or whether through um through the prayer of the priest praying over the elements of bread and wine the same prayer is used come holy spirit it's uh you know that old the epiclesis as it's as it's usually called the kind of calling down of the spirit upon the congregation there's a there's a, there's a line mm. in the communion service certainly in the anglican church isn't there where you know send your holy spirit mm-hmm. upon your people which is a very common prayer to both sort of more mm-hmm. youth, more sacramental types of of, of um of worship and mm. more charismatic types too. And, and i think that um well some of the things i've noticed is that i always used to think that you know evangelicals and charismatics always talk about you know a personal relationship with god whereas the high church talk about the sacramental and actually, there are different ways of saying, talking about the same thing. A sacrament is that which, where the divine and the human Relate meet, meet mm, and touch mm, mm. and are affected by one another. And, and that's actually the same sort of thing that uh, mm. a, a different wing of the church is talking about when they talk about a personal living relationship mm. with, with God. It's also partly to do with freedom and order, isn't it? Because I guess sometimes... Maybe on the more charismatic side, you can think, well, it's, it's all about freedom. We don't really need any order. We don't need any structure. And, and that can lead to a slightly more kind of rather chaotic, kind of unfocused and unshaped. I have to say I've been in um, charismatic churches for quite a while, and uh, I've never been in a very disorderly one. I think uh, mm. That's because you've been there. More, sure. uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> more often than not, mm. I think it's actually that charismatic churches have a great deal of order and rigidity and structure. Mm. It's mm. just that we uh, like to pretend that we don't. Uh, so I think uh, I think uh, all churches probably have structure and forms and sort of and liturgies in the way, yes. yeah, liturgies yeah, yeah. if you like, in the way they they operate. Uh, uh, the point is to be conscious of of it and engaging in a lively yeah. way with whatever liturgy it is. Yeah, I mean, in some ways that was my my 
my point is that freedom and order actually need each other. They're not opposites. Hmm. That actually freedom operates within order and, and order needs freedom because if it hasn't got a sense of sort of freedom hmm. and within it, it becomes rather ossified and, and cold and rigid. You actually find your freedom within a, an inclusive structure. Hmm. And I, I think the other thing is that um, different styles of worship reflect different aspects of the nature of God. Um, hmm. You know, a kind hmm. of charismatic form of worship uh, captures very well the immediacy, the warmth, um, the presence of God, but, but doesn't always capture his greatness and his majesty mm -hmm. and glory terribly well. Whereas I think a high church um, style of worship can capture the majesty, the splendor, the otherness, the uh, mm -hmm. in the right sense, the remoteness um, of God, um, and yet doesn't capture mm -hmm. so well sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the immediacy, the presence, and the love, mm. and and somehow, if you could get the best of both um, together, yes. it it might begin to mm. to capture both aspects mm. of who God is. And there, and there are aspects, I guess, of any tradition of worship that you think you know you could leave happily on one side, and mm. that could be true of both charismatic and high church. But it does seem to me that that um, there's an element in which I think all Christian worship ought to be charismatic in the broadest mm, sense mm, of that word, mm -hmm. in a sense of an expectancy of the Spirit's presence and the exercise of the different gifts that God has given to his church. That seems to me a, a sort of a fundamental about Christian worship. And it's, it's, it's a, I always think it's a bit of a shame when we think of the charismatic section of the church as if the rest of the church isn't. Yes. Charismatic. It seems to me the Holy Spirit it belongs to the whole church, not just to the charismatics. Mm -hmm. And that's something we want to say again, again and again. Similarly, sacraments. You can think that's often you think, oh, sacraments they belong to the high church, but actually sacraments are also they belong to the whole church too. So um, I think I want to say that all Christian worship needs to be charismatic in the fullest sense of that word, um, and uh, and also sacramental. That doesn't mean every single service has to have a, have the sacraments in it, but. You know, Christian worship is sacramental in its nature too. I remember talking to a vicar once about um, when I was quite a new Christian. I I'd been going off to uh, Soul Survivor every summer, which was sort of, uh, as most people may well know, a big charismatic Christian youth uh, conference um, in uh, in Somerset. And uh, uh, and uh, this vicar was very uh, critical of this. She sort of said, um, well, you just sing the same songs over and over again. You sing the same words. These choruses, they're so repetitive. Um, and so and her recommendation for me was to uh, uh, instead of going to survival one summer was to go to Taze one summer. <laughs> uh, and if you know anything about Taze, you know that the, the, they used uh, very beautiful chants, very haunting, powerful chants, but which uh, often which use words of scripture and repeat them again and yep. again and again. Yep. Now, uh, often. Uh, people might criticise, uh, you know, re re repetition. Mm. Uh, and of course, repetition can be done in a very lifeless way, just as spontaneity can be very lifeless as well. But actually, uh, quite often, repeating things helps you focus on different aspects of it, helps you perhaps uh, not just to focus on your thoughts, but also on God's with you in your thoughts. Uh, so it's something that... Uh, uh, that Christians have often found helpful, and uh, both traditions do it. And and not just both those traditions, but the Psalms, for uh -huh. instance. I mean, Psalm 136 has yes. the phrase, his love endures forever, 
every verse Many times. for yeah. uh, whatever it is, <laughs> 20, 20, 26 <laughs> verses. There's repetition for you. Uh, yeah. And what J Jesus is complaining about is not repetition, but vain repetition. <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, and I think we need to try and yes, recognize the difference. Off. Showing off. And of course, both traditions can you know, have showing off. That's in, the danger they have their for different ways of uh, showing mm -hmm. off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think our, our experience, I mean, we all teach in St. Melitus College, and I think our, our experience is that we, in that college, we have quite a range of students, many students from quite charismatic backgrounds, mm -hmm. many students from more sort of Catholic, high church backgrounds. And actually, over time, you do see a sort of blending of those things, people learning from one another in a sense that they're not in, totally incompatible with each other, mm. and a kind of um, blending of those things together. Or, or blending without a, a loss of the distinctiveness, yeah. in a sense. Mm -hmm. People still mm -hmm. do their thing full-bloodedly, yeah. but begin to appreciate mm -hmm. uh, the other as well yeah. and learn from that and get benefit from yeah. that. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mike was about to answer. I was going yes. to say something. But, was but it a gem? Uh, I can't now remember, you so probably not. Well. It's a semi-precious okay, okay. we'll one. Pass on. Yeah. We will um, just have got very long left, but we, we do want to tackle one other one, which is a really interesting question about resurrection. Uh, again, I'm completely at a loss. I won't know how to link this one to the last one, but I won't try. Um, and this is the question. That when Jesus rose from the dead, he took on a resurrection body and then he ascended into heaven. So where is his bodily self now? That's the question. I, I think in that other dimension of created reality that we call heaven is uh, in, in the immediate presence of the Father. Um, in that other dimension of reality that we call heaven the, which in which god is is immediately present so is that does that imply that um but if, if, if he has taken on a resurrection body which is in some ways a, a new body it's a physical not just a sort of spiritual thing mm. but in saying that he has gone to be at the right hand of the father does does that imply a sort of spiritual existence and does that is that therefore incompatible i i think it implies that he has taken a bit of this dimension into that dimension. Yes. It is part of the wedding of the two mm. that is going to be consummated when he comes back. Um, it's it's an extraordinary thing to me that there are now molecules and atoms and quarks and cells within the very being of God. So God, God cannot now abandon mm. the world without abandoning himself. He's not only mm. eternally committed to creation he's internally committed to creation he's wel welded himself to it uh, in a way that there's no going back um and and that to me is the ground of hope for mm. our cosmos so in one sense graham you asked is it spiritual and of course surely it must be spiritual but um the new testament is really clear also that jesus resurrected body was still uh, and is still completely physical so uh, he uh, famously ate the piece of broiled fish i don't know what broiling means do you know what broiling means i've always wondered what yeah, how is. do you broil fish yeah it's a good I'm question a i think it's not dissimilar to boiling okay but we go on to the cookery <laughs> class so, uh, but uh, maybe steaming i don't know i to be yeah. honest i don't know so anyway it was however it was cooked he ate it and then yes. uh, and he showed them says in john's gospel he showed them his hands and his side so even after he had been uh, resurrected he still had the wounds in his body so physically mm. it was the same body and yet somehow it was miraculously different as well yeah. I mean, it, it is the testimony of the church isn't it that 
it's you know Christ didn't leave his body and sort of send in a sort of spiritual ghostly way mm, mm. to the Father. He had, it was actually the body of Christ that ascended. Mm-hmm. He didn't sort of leave it like a kind of uh, you know a sort of chrysalis or something mm-hmm. left with a sort of shell that's left down down here. No, the, the, it was the, the the resurrection body, the human resurrection body of Christ that ascended to the right hand of the Father, and therefore, in a sense, there's one of us yeah. there yeah. with yes. with God in the Godhead now. And, um, you know, as we are in Christ, we too can share in that divine life. And that's where we're Mm. destined to be. Ephesians says we're seated with Christ (coughs) in the heavenly places, doesn't it? So there's that wonderful sense of, although in one level we're walking around on earth and going about, Mm. I'm not going to Tesco's and we're eating Mm. lunch and things Mm. like that. At the same time, we are seated with Christ Mm. because we're in Christ we're up there with him. Yeah, and again, presence. back to our previous discussion, I guess it is the it is the Spirit who who unites yes, us with yes. Christ, and this is a big theme in the theology of Calvin, isn't it? That 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 in you know that um, in the Spirit we are taken up in Christ mm. to the right hand of the Father. We share in the divine life, that sort of mystery of the divine life, through our embodiment within Christ through the ascension. And. When you think about how encouraged the Polish people were when they had one of their number on the throne of St. Peter, mm. uh, as they would have seen mm. it, um, at a time when things were very difficult mm. and dark for them. Pope John Paul II. But I'm thinking of Pope yeah. John Paul II. Um, it's rather similar, only more so, <laughs> to have one of our number on the throne of heaven. <laughs> when things are difficult here, um, there is a reality in which humanity is glorified. Um, and that mm. is going mm. to be that's the normative going reality to be, yes, and it's going exactly to be the pervasive reality yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. very good well thank you very much for um very interesting discussions as always so um thank you sean very much for joining us today Thanks for having me and uh, thank you as always michael it's a pleasure very good well uh, there have been no biscuits today so it's a biscuitless shocking I did, I did have some mange too <laughs> and some <laughs> baby sweet corn however not quite so good as the biscuits well and they weren't broiled and you didn't share them with us either (laughs) i offered them to you but you refused anything so healthy (laughs) exactly anyway well that was god pod 67 we'll be back again uh, before too long so um thank you for listening that was god pod a podcast from the st paul's theological center if you want to send us a question just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk we can't promise to answer all the questions you send in but we'll certainly try Until next time, goodbye.